Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin Chapter 1 The Knowledge of God The whole sum of our wisdom, wisdom that is which deserves to be called true and assured, broadly consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. The purpose of the first of these is to show not only that there is one God whom all must worship and honour, but also that he is the fount of all truth, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, judgment, mercy, power and holiness. We must learn, therefore, to expect and ask these things from him, and with praise and thanksgiving to acknowledge that they come from him. The purpose of the second is to show us our weakness, misery, vanity and vileness, to fill us with despair, distrust and hatred of ourselves, and then to kindle in us the desire to seek God, for in him is found all that is good, and of which we ourselves are empty and deprived. Now it is not easy to discern which of the two comes first and so gives rise to the other. For since in man there lies a world of utter misery, we cannot rightly observe ourselves without painfully feeling our misfortune and without at once lifting our eyes toward God, so as to attain at least a partial knowledge of him. Thus, in recognising our lowliness, ignorance and vanity, as well as our perversity and corruption, we come to understand that true greatness, wisdom, truth, righteousness and purity reside in God. Lastly, we are impelled by our miseries to reflect on the Lord's good gifts, and we cannot sincerely yearn for him until we have first begun to cease being pleased with ourselves. What man, after all, does not willingly choose to have confidence in himself? Who does not feel confident as long as knowing nothing of himself, he is content with his own abilities and fails to appreciate his plight? That is why self-knowledge not only encourages us to seek after God, but guides and practically leads us by the hand to find him. Self-knowledge impossible without the knowledge of God. Conversely, we observe that no one ever attains clear knowledge of self unless he has first gazed upon the face of the Lord and then turns back to look upon himself. Deeply rooted in all of us is an arrogance which persuades us that we are righteous, truthful, wise and holy. Only clear evidence that we are unrighteous, deceitful, foolish and vile will convince us of the contrary. We feel no such conviction if all we do is look upon ourselves and not also upon the Lord. He is the one and only standard with which our judgment must accord. But because hypocrisy is something to which we are all naturally prone, we are quite content with an empty show of righteousness rather than with its reality. And because there is nothing around us which is not greatly defiled, Whatever is a little less grubby appears to us as purity itself, as long as we confine our attention to the limits of our own debased humanity. 
It is like the eye, which used to seeing only objects that are dark, judges things which are vaguely white or even semi-grey to be the whitest there is. An analogy based on physical sight will help us better understand how badly we misjudge our soul's powers. If in broad daylight we look down at the ground or attend to things which are round about us, we have no trouble believing our sight is extremely sharp and keen. When, however, we look straight up at the sun, the power that served us so well on earth is dazed and dazzled by so intense a light, forcing us to admit that our ability clearly to see earthly objects is weak and feeble when it comes to gazing at the sun. This is how it is when we try to estimate our spiritual strengths. As long as we do not look beyond the earth's horizons, we are perfectly content with our own righteousness, wisdom and power. We flatter and congratulate ourselves and are not far from thinking we are demigods. If, however, we turn our thoughts toward the Lord and realize how consummate is his righteousness, wisdom and power, which are the standard to which we must conform, what we once took to be righteousness will appear foul and utterly evil. What we wrongly thought of as a miracle of wisdom will be seen to be pure folly. What we've regarded as power will turn out to be wretched feebleness. Indeed, what we reckon to be perfectly blameless in us will never match the purity to be found in God. Hence the terror and dread which as scripture often relates, seized believers whenever they felt the presence of God. We read about those who in the Lord's absence stood firm and assured, but who, when suddenly confronted by his glory, shook with fear, seized, as it were, by the pangs of death and almost annihilated. From this, it is clear that we are led to acknowledge our frailty only when we have measured ourselves against the majesty of God. Many instances of this kind of dread are found in the book of Judges and also in the prophets, so much so that God's people had a common saying, we will surely die since the Lord has appeared to us. That too is why the story of Job, in order to humble men by showing them their folly, weakness and defilement, chiefly appeals for proof to a consideration of God's wisdom, power and purity. It does so with good reason. For we read that the closer Abraham got to contemplating the glory of the Lord, the more he realised that he was but earth and dust. Elijah similarly could not await God's appearance with his face uncovered. So afraid was he to gaze on him. What then might man do, who is mere vermin and rottenness, when even the cherubim must veil their faces in great fear and reverence. As the prophet Isaiah declares, the sun will be ashamed and the moon confounded when the Lord of hosts shall reign. That is when he lifts up and puts forth his light, all else that is brightest will, in comparison, grow dark. Nevertheless, however mutually connected are the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves, there is a proper order which requires us to give priority to the knowledge of God. From there, we will come back to the other.
when awareness of God is common to all. We regard it as beyond dispute that there is in the mind of man, by natural inclination, a certain feeling for divinity, so that no one should seek refuge by claiming ignorance. The Lord has instilled in everyone some understanding of his majesty, so that all, having learned that there is one God and that he is their creator, should be condemned by their own testimony, because they have failed to honour him and to devote their lives to doing his will. To be sure, if we look for evidence that men have existed who were unaware of God and who had no knowledge of him, nothing could very likely be found except perhaps among the most ignorant of peoples who are furthest removed from civilization and humanity. Yet, as even the heathen admit, there is no nation so barbarous, no race so wild, that it does not have a heartfelt impression that there is a God and those who in other areas of their lives seem scarcely to differ from brute beasts nevertheless preserve some seed of religion, so rooted is this universal concept in every mind and so firmly fixed in every heart. Therefore, since from the beginning of the world no country, town or even household has managed to do without religion, there we have a tacit admission that in the heart of every human being is stamped a feeling for divinity. Idolatry itself gives abundant proof of this idea. For we know how far man contrives to abase himself, however reluctantly, and how ready he is to honour other creatures in preference to himself. So because he would rather honour wood and stone than be reckoned to have no god at all, we can clearly see how strong is this perception of divine majesty. Man can less easily wipe it from his mind than he can deny his own natural inclinations. Deny them he does when he lays aside his haughty arrogance and willingly humbles himself before the vilest creatures on earth in order to pay God homage. That is why it is false to assert, as some do, that religion was forged in olden times by the craft and cunning of a few in order to keep common folk under control even though those who urged others to honour God had no concept themselves of deity. Now I freely admit that some sly and scheming individuals among the heathen invented a good many things in religion, intimidating ordinary people and filling their minds with scruples so as to make them more obedient and docile. However, they would never have had their way if men were not already firmly persuaded that there was a God. This is the reason men were so ready to believe whatever they were told about him. Nor should we think that those who on the pretext of religion deceived the more ignorant were themselves quite devoid of the idea that God exists. For although in former times there were some, and today many, who deny the very notion of deity, they must continually sense, whether willingly or no, what they prefer not to know. We read of no one more brazen or frenzied in his contempt of God than the Roman Emperor Gaius Caligula. No one, however, ever trembled more wretchedly than he each time some mark of God's anger appeared. So despite himself, he had a dread of God whom he consciously sought to scorn. You will usually find that the same is true of others like him. 
The more outspoken a person is in his contempt of God, the more startled he will be by the sound of a leaf falling from a tree. Why is that? It is because God's majesty takes vengeance upon such people. The more they try to flee from it, the more he terrifies their conscience. They cast around for every hiding place imaginable where they may shelter from God's presence, and they try to drive from their minds every memory of it. But try as they may, they are trapped. And although sometimes the memory seems to vanish for a while, it inevitably returns to press them harder than before. The result is that if they feel some relief from the distress of conscience, it is little different from the sleep of drunkards or madmen, who even when asleep do not rest easy since they are continually haunted by dreadful visions and dreams. Thus, the example of even the most wicked shows that the knowledge of God is an active and universal force in the hearts of all men. The seed of religion is perverted by self-will. We have already mentioned that the knowledge of God must be such as effectively to plant in our hearts some seed of religion. This is so that first we may be taught to fear and reverence God, and second that we may learn that all good things must be sought in him, and that for these we owe him the duty of gratitude. For how can your mind conceive of God if you do not immediately see that you who are his handiwork are by right of creation subject to and dependent on his rule? That your life should be devoted to his service? That everything you plan, say and do should be referred to him? If that is so, it obviously follows that your life is terribly corrupt if it is not governed by obedience to his holy will. Then too, you cannot clearly comprehend him unless you recognize that he is the fountain source of all that is good. That thought would surely make us want to be united with him and to trust in his goodness, except that our mind is kept by its own willfulness from properly pursuing its inquiry. But whether in this way or in some other, we all give evidence of prodigious vanity and foolishness. Instead of maintaining a lifelong attitude of constant obedience to God, we resist him in almost everything we do and try to placate him by making a few paltry amends. Instead of pleasing him by holiness and innocence of heart, we invent a mishmash of paltry ceremonies, hoping that these will occupy his attention. What is more, the trust which should centre wholly on him is placed instead in ourselves or other creatures. Lastly, we are entangled in so much error and evil belief that the spark of truth which might enlighten us and lead us to behold God's majesty is hidden and extinguished. It is incapable, therefore, of leading us to a true knowledge of him. There remains only the initial seed, which can never be completely removed. That is to say, we know that there is a deity. Even so, the seed is so corrupt 
that it produces only rotten fruit. The twin evils of superstition and craven fear. In this respect, we sin chiefly in two ways. First, in their search for God's truth, men do not, sadly, go beyond the limits of their nature as they should. Rather, they judge God's greatness according to their own crude understanding. They comprehend him not as he has made himself known, but according to the image which they themselves have arrogantly fashioned. In the process, they open up an abyss into which, whatever way they turn, they must necessarily fall to their own perdition. For whatever they may later strive to do to serve God, they can gain no credit with him because they honour not him, but in his stead, their own private conceits. Thus, the empty excuse which many commonly use to cover their superstition is swept away. For they think that any religious inclination of whatever sort and however confused will suffice. They never reflect that true religion must conform to God's will as to a permanent norm and that God always remains true to himself. He is not a ghost who takes whatever form an individual may fancy. It is easy, indeed, to see how the victim of its own empty illusions, superstition mocks God whenever it tries to please him. It only fastens on the things which God expressly says mean nothing to him. It ignores those which he has commanded and which he has said are acceptable to him, or else it openly rejects them. Therefore all who, wishing to honour God, set up religions of their own devising, are merely worshipping their own fantasies. For they would never have ventured to trifle with God if they had not first fashioned him according to their whims. That is why the Apostle teaches that an uncertain and confused notion of God amounts to ignorance of him. When you did not know God, he writes, you are serving those who by nature are no gods at all. In another text, he declares that the Ephesians were without God as long as they had no true knowledge of him. In that respect, it makes little difference whether we conceive of one God or many seeing that in the end we renounce and abandon the true God. Once we desert him, all that remains is accursed idolatry. That is why we must conclude with Lactantius that no religion is valid which is not also joined to truth. The second error which men commit is that they think about God only reluctantly when necessity compels them. They are not moved by fear, born of reverence for his majesty, but only by dread of his judgment, which fills them with terror because they cannot escape it. They heartily curse it notwithstanding. What a pagan poet wrote strictly applies to irreligion and only to irreligion. Fear was what first brought reverence for God into the world. To be sure, all whose hearts are far from God's righteousness would be glad if his judgment seat, which they know is set for the punishment of all unrighteousness, 
were overthrown. It is this wish which makes them wage war on God, who cannot remain as God unless he is also judge. But because they know that his power over them is inescapable, for they can neither suppress nor avoid it, they are afraid of it. So in order not to appear utterly contemptuous of his majesty, they observe some form of religion such as it is. Yet all the while they persist in defiling themselves with all kinds of vice and in heaping one sin upon another, until they have wholly transgressed the Lord's holy law and put his righteousness to flight. Or at the very least, the fear which they pretend to feel is not enough to stop them resting easy in their sin, indulging themselves and preferring to give fleshly excess free reign rather than bringing it under the Holy Spirit's control. What true godliness entails. But because all such things are an empty shadow of religion, indeed they hardly deserve to be called a shadow at all, we must briefly speak of that special knowledge of God which is instilled only in the hearts of believers, and of the impulse to godliness which follows from it. To begin with, the believing heart does not haphazardly forge for itself some kind of God. Rather, it looks to him who is the true and only God. It does not ascribe to him whatever qualities it pleases, but is content to take him as he shows himself to be. It is always careful not to depart from God's will through headstrong pride. Knowing him thus, and understanding that he governs all things by his providence, it confidently accepts him as guardian and protector, and therefore entrusts itself to his keeping, since it knows him to be the author of all that is good. If beset by pressing need, it at once falls back on him for help, and after calling on him by name, it awaits his aid, for it is persuaded that he is both generous and kind. It relies with assurance on his compassion, never doubting that for every distress there will be a remedy furnished by his mercy. Since it acknowledges him as Lord and Father, it considers him to be worthy whose commands it obeys, whose majesty it reveres, whose glory it endeavours to promote, and whose will it follows. Since it perceives him to be a just judge, who one day will exact severe vengeance on all transgressors, it always has its sights set on God's judgment seat, so as to steer clear of whatever might provoke his wrath. Nevertheless, in thinking of its own judgment, it does not feel such dread as to want to avoid it, even supposing it had the means to escape. On the contrary, it is as ready to accept God as the chastiser of the wicked as it is to accept him as the rewarder of the good, because it knows that punishing the guilty and recompensing believers with eternal life belong equally to his glory. Furthermore, it is not mere fear of his vengeance which holds the heart back from sinning. It is because it loves and reveres him as its father and fears him as its lord. Even if hell did not exist, it would dread to offend him.
That is what is meant by pure and true religion, namely faith joined with unfeigned fear of God. The word fear comprising both love for the righteousness which God has commanded in his law and reverence freely and wholeheartedly given for his majesty. So then, if we are all born on the understanding that we should know God, knowledge of him being empty and unfruitful if it fails to progress that far, it is obvious that all whose thoughts and actions in life are not directed to this goal fall short and fail to fulfill the order of their creation. That is something that was not unknown to the philosophers. It was what Plato meant when he taught a number of times that the soul's sovereign good is likeness to God, for when it truly attains the contemplation of him, it is completely transformed into him. Gryllus, too, argues most perceptively in Plutarch that if religion were removed from the life of men, not only would they cease to be superior to the brute beasts, but in many ways they would be much more miserable since being prone to so many different ills, they would lead onerous and troubled lives. Thus, it is only the knowledge of God which makes them superior and which allows them to aspire to immortality. God revealed in his manifold works of creation. Because God desires that the chief end of the blessed life should be to know his name, he reveals himself clearly to everyone, so that he should not seem to want to deny some men entry into happiness. For although in his nature he is incomprehensible and hidden from human understanding, he has impressed on each of his works certain signs of his majesty by which he makes himself known to us, according to our small capacity. Signs, I say, so familiar and so obvious that the blindest and most untutored of men have no excuse for ignorance. Thus, however veiled his essence is to us, his qualities which are continually open to our view reveal him such as we need to know him for our salvation. First, then, whichever way we turn our eyes, there is no part of the world, however small, in which at least some spark of God's glory does not shine. In particular, we cannot gaze upon this beautiful masterpiece of the world in all its length and breadth without being completely dazzled, as it were, by an endless flood of light. Accordingly, in Hebrews, the Apostle aptly calls the world the mirror of things invisible because the structure of the world serves as a mirror in which we behold God who otherwise cannot be seen. This, too, is why the prophet ascribes to the heavenly bodies a language familiar to every nation, since their witness to divinity is so clear that it is not unknown even to the most simple and barbarous of men. Paul puts it still more plainly when he writes that what needed to be known about God was made manifest, since the invisible things concerning him, his eternal power and deity, are clear to us when we consider the world which he has made. There are countless proofs, both in heaven and on earth, which testify to his marvellous wisdom. Nor are these only proofs which are hard to comprehend and intelligible only through the study of astronomy, medicine and natural science. 
They are visible even to the dullest and most ignorant, so that the eye, once opened, is constrained to witness these things. It is of course true that people who are schooled in the liberal arts, or who have had some taste of them, are especially helped to plumb the secrets of divine wisdom. Yet ignorance of these things does not stop anyone observing much skillful design in God's works and being led, as a result, to marvel at the skill of the worker. For example, special competence and application are needed to trace the movement of the stars, to determine their orbits, to measure distances and to note their individual peculiarities. Such an exercise, since it reveals God's providence more clearly, should rightly lift the heart to a fuller view of his glory. Nevertheless, because those who have only their eyes to help them cannot fail to see God's surpassing wisdom, which is easily observed in the endless but well-ordered profusion of the stars, it follows that there is no one to whom God does not most adequately reveal his wisdom. Again, to discover in the structure of the human body such an assembly of balanced, beautiful and useful elements as Galen shows to exist, requires much intelligence. And yet no one can fail to see that the human body is so cleverly crafted that its maker is rightly judged to be a wonder worker. As for God's power, how many instances of it make us turn our attention toward him? This would never be the case if we had no notion of the power by which his word alone sustains the infinite expanse of heaven and earth, and by which he sometimes commands thunder to shake the sky, fiery bolts to scorch whatever he pleases, lightning to set the air ablaze, a variety of storms to bring terror to the earth, or else when he pleases, to return it instantly to peace and tranquility. By that same power he at one time keeps the sea suspended in the air, so that however much its height threatens the earth with destruction, it can cause no harm. At another he convulses it fearfully with his mighty winds, or else, straight away calming its waves, he puts it to rest. God's very power should lead us to infer his eternity, since the one in whom all things have their origin must of necessity be eternal and have his beginning in himself. If, besides, we ask the cause which led him to create all things at one stroke and to preserve them once they were created, we will find no other cause than his goodness, which, if it were his only attribute, should be more than enough to draw us to his love. For as the prophet teaches, there is no creature on whom he has not poured out his mercy. God revealed in his works of providence. There is a second category of God's works, those occurring outside the normal course of nature in which equally clear signs of his power appear. For in ruling over mankind, he so orders his providence that although he is commonly and in every way kind and generous to all, he daily reveals his righteousness to the good whom he guides and his judgment to the wicked. 
for the retribution which he meets out for sin is neither secret nor hidden. In the same way, he appears as the sure protector and guardian of innocence, for through his blessing he gives prosperity to the good, assists them in time of need, relieves their suffering, remedies their misfortunes, and ever and always provides for their salvation. Although for a time he may leave the wicked and wrongdoers unpunished, and may even suffer the good and the innocent to endure many adversities and to face oppression from evil men, we should not lose sight of the fact that he always rules in righteousness. We should reason very differently, for when a particular sin clearly provokes God's anger, we must recognise that sins of every kind are hateful to him. And because he leaves many sins unpunished, we must expect a later judgment, sin's punishment being deferred. Likewise, what an opportunity we have to contemplate his leniency when he does not fail to pursue wretched sinners with his mercy, bringing them back to him with more than a fatherly kindness until their obstinacy yields to his benevolence. Nor are his might and wisdom hidden from view. The first is plainly seen when very often the cruelty of the wicked, which humanly speaking seemed unassailable, is in an instant crushed and destroyed, their arrogance tamed, their defences overrun, their weapons scattered and broken in pieces, their strength dispersed, their schemes frustrated and undone by their recklessness, their daring which reached up above the skies dragged down to earth's very core. Once more, those who are despised are raised up from the dust, the poor are lifted out of the dung heap, the oppressed and afflicted are rescued from dire distress, the despairing are restored to hope, and the defenceless few triumph over the many armed, the weak over the strong. God's wisdom is made manifest in that it orders all things in the most timely way, it confounds all earthly wisdom, traps the wise in their own cleverness, and determines the whole course of the world with peerless reason. Thus, we see that no elaborate argument is needed to assemble the proofs which serve to demonstrate and prove God's majesty. For however brief our discussion, it is clear that they are perfectly familiar, and so obvious that whichever way we turn, the eye may readily note them and the finger point them out. God accessible to the heart. Here, however, we must observe that the knowledge of God to which we are called does not consist in empty speculation, but is useful and fruitful once we truly understand it. For God is made known to us in his works, so that when we feel their force within us and receive their benefits, such knowledge should touch us more keenly than if we conceived of God as some airy being of whom we had no real experience. Accordingly, the proper way to seek God and the best way to proceed is to behold him in his works, for through them he becomes close and familiar to us, and indeed imparts something of himself. 
We must not try, however, in our reckless curiosity, to pry into the greatness of his essence, which is a matter for worship, not for close investigation. The Apostle had this very thing in mind when he stated that we do not need to search very far, since God lives in each of us by his power. The same is true of David, who first affirms God's unspeakable greatness and then records his works, declaring that he will make them known. Let us too be diligent in seeking out God, and may our search so fill our minds with wonder that they are similarly touched with a true feeling for him. This kind of knowledge should not only prompt us to know and serve God, but should also arouse and awaken us to the hope of the future life. For we perceive that the signs which God gives both of his goodness and severity are partial and only half complete. They are samples, as it were, of what will be fully and finally revealed on the appointed day. Moreover, since we see the good and the innocent bowed down with suffering, hurt by insults, wounded by slanders, enduring scorn and shame, and since on the other hand the wicked flourish, prosper, enjoy untroubled ease and esteem, we are led to conclude that there will be another life in which iniquity will be punished and righteousness rewarded. In addition, since we know that the Lord often chastises believers with his rod, we must be quite certain that the wicked will avoid his chastisements much less. We thus maintain that in each of the Lord's works, but chiefly in their totality, his powers are represented as in a painting, through which the entire world is invited to know God and knowing him, to enjoy supreme happiness. Now, although these powers are very clearly evident, we often fail to understand their ultimate meaning, importance and purpose until we descend into ourselves and consider how God displays in us his life, wisdom and power and how he exercises his righteousness, goodness and mercy toward us. Man is sadly blind to the message of God's works. Nevertheless, whatever light is kindled for us as we behold God's works, our mind, in attempting to picture both him and his eternal kingdom, is so carnal that these very clear proofs convey no more to us about them than they do to the blind. When it comes to the structure of the whole wide world, how many of us lift our eyes heavenward? Or in surveying every country on earth, how many think to remember the Creator? And how many, ignoring the workman, look no further than the creature? As for what lies outside the ordinary course of nature, how many there are who see only chance at work, as it tosses and tumbles men about, instead of God's providence which in fact governs them? And if, as inevitably happens to all men, we are sometimes forced to consider God's role in all of this, we no sooner have a vague inkling of some deity or other than we return to the foolish notions of the flesh, and in our vanity we corrupt God's pure truth.
Naturally, we are different in one respect, since we all invent some new error peculiar to ourselves. In another respect, however, we are all very much alike. Without exception, we abandon the one true God and follow our own false ideas. Now, this is an evil which afflicts not only the common folk and the dull-witted, but also those who most excel in wisdom and learning. How foolish and stupid has the whole class of philosophers proved to be in this regard. For although we might forgive others who have made outrageous errors, Plato, the most sober and rational of men and the closest to religion, is quite befuddled, for he looks for a corporal God. This is unworthy of God and ill befits his majesty. Where then does that leave the rest of us, given that the leaders whose task it is to enlighten the rest of us have gone so badly wrong? In the same way, although the direction of human affairs points so clearly to providence that it cannot be denied, we can no more profit from it than if we attributed the twists and turns of history to chance. Such is our propensity to futility and error. I am still speaking of the most outstanding minds, not of ordinary intellects whose folly has corrupted and sullied God's truth beyond all measure. Vainly, then, do so many lamps shine for us in the habitation of the world, revealing the Creator's glory, for however far they cast their rays, they cannot put us on the right track. It is true that they emit a few sparks, but these die before they burst into full light. Therefore the Apostle, in the same passage in which he describes the world as the image of things not seen, adds that by faith man understands that the world was created by God's word. By this he means that the invisible deity is mirrored in the form of the world, but that our eyes do not allow us to see it unless through faith they are illumined by God's inner revelation. When indeed Paul declares that what can be known of God is displayed in the creation of the world, he does not mean the kind of display which the human mind can comprehend, but one whose sole effect is to make men inexcusable. And although the Apostle says elsewhere that we do not have to look far to find God, because he dwells in us. Yet in another text, he shows what this nearness entails. Hitherto, he writes, God has allowed the nations to go their own way, but he has not left himself without witnesses, sending them blessings from heaven, giving rain and fruitfulness, filling men with food and gladness. While, therefore, God has not left himself without witnesses, since in his liberality he gently invites men to know him, nevertheless they persist in going their own way, that is, they go mortally astray. Now although we lack the natural ability to rise to the pure and wholesome knowledge of God, yet because it is our fault that we are ignorant, escape is denied us.
We cannot rightly claim ignorance without also incurring the charge of indifference and thanklessness. It is surely a weak defence, unworthy to be entertained. For anyone to say that he lacked the ears to hear the truth which dumb creatures proclaim with the loudest and clearest of voices. Or to say that he did not have the eyes to see what sightless creatures plainly reveal. Or to blame his feebleness of mind for not knowing what every unreasoning creature teaches. Thus we are justly deprived of every excuse seeing that we stumble uphill and down dale like lost souls, while everything around us points to the path we should take. All this, of course, arises from human failings, for men immediately corrupt the seed of God's knowledge, which nature with marvellous skill has planted in their minds. As a result, it fails to produce good fruit, Yet it remains true that we do not ourselves learn enough from the plain and simple witness which the creation bears to God's greatness. For no sooner do we acquire from our study of the world some small taste of divinity than we abandon the true God. His place is taken by whatever fantasies our brain dreams up, and we give them the credit for God's righteousness, wisdom, goodness and power. Moreover, we so obscure God's daily works, or else minimize and thus dismiss them, that he is deprived and robbed of the praise and thanks we owe him. God's word is a necessary addition to his works. Now, just as the Lord reveals to all without exception the brightness of his majesty represented by his creation, thus stripping man's impiety of any defence, so too he provides a surer remedy to aid the weakness of those to whom he chooses to disclose himself in salvation. For in order to instruct them, he uses more than mute creatures. He opens his holy lips, not just to declare that they should worship some kind of god, but to reveal himself as the God who must be worshipped. Not only does he teach them to acknowledge one God, he also presents himself to them as the one beyond whom they must not go. From the outset, the Lord has observed this pattern in calling his servants. In addition to the instruction already described, he has employed his word, which is a surer and more intimate mark by which he may be known. This was how Adam, Noah, Abraham, and the other patriarchs came truly to know him, being enlightened by his word. Whether that word came to them by oracles and visions, or whether their predecessors first heard it and passed it on from hand to hand by preaching, it mattered little how they came to share in the divine word, as long as they recognized that it came from God. The Lord always provided such assurance whenever he wished to give effect to the word revealed. He therefore made himself known to a few people, giving them a clear sign of his presence and entrusting them with the treasure of his saving message that they might impart it to their posterity. So we read that Abraham shared with his family the covenant of eternal life 
which God had made with him, and took care to preserve it for future generations. From that time on, something different separated Abraham's line from the other nations. By a singular grace of God, it had been received into the fellowship of the word. Now when the Lord was pleased to raise up a church which was even more strictly set apart, he published his word in more solemn form and willed that it be written down as in a formal charter. Hence from then on, all further oracles and revelations of God's word began to be recorded in writing, whereas before they had been preserved among believers who passed them on from one to another. By this means, the Lord in his special providence saw to the welfare of those who came after. God's truth accessible only through scripture. If we think of how inclined the human mind is to forget God, how easily it is led into error, by what flights of fancy it dreams up, hour by hour, new and counterfeit religions, we may readily understand how necessary it was for the heavenly doctrine to be couched in written form, lest it perish through forgetfulness or be lost through error or be corrupted by the impudence of men. Whenever God wished to provide men with profitable instruction, he had recourse to his word, since he saw that his face and image etched into the edifice of the world were not enough. It is clear then that this is the road we too must take if we yearn with all our heart rightly to contemplate his truth. We must, I repeat, return to the word in which God is amply revealed to us and vividly portrayed by his acts, when these are judged not by our own perverse opinions, but by the norm of eternal truth. But if we depart from God's word, however fast we move, we will never reach our goal, for we are leaving the road far behind. We should remember that God's light, which the apostle calls unapproachable, is like a maze in which we would lose ourselves if we did not have the word to guide us through it. It is better for us indeed to stumble along this road than to rush at great speed off it. So it is that David first of all declares that the heavens proclaim God's glory and the firmament his handiwork and that his majesty is revealed in the orderly succession of day and night. He then goes on to celebrate God's word saying, the law of the Lord is spotless, converting souls. The testimony of the Lord is true, giving wisdom to the humble. The righteous deeds of the Lord are just, rejoicing the heart. The precepts of the Lord are clear, enlightening the eye. What he means is that the message of God's creation is universal for all peoples, but that the teaching of the word is the school peculiar to God's children. Scripture's authority is not determined by the church. Once it is agreed that the word which is proclaimed is from God, not even the most hardened villain, unless it be someone devoid of natural sense and humanity, would dare to decry it as untrustworthy. But because fresh oracles are not handed down from heaven every day, 
scripture being all we have, for there God has chosen to record his truth for all time. We must briefly discuss why, for believers, it has the same authority as if they were hearing God's own voice. Although this subject deserves fuller consideration and more careful treatment, readers will forgive me if I attend more to the plan of the present book than to the importance of the topic. Many people commit the fatal error of believing that scripture has only such value as the church agrees to accord it, as if God's eternal and inviolable truth depended on men's good pleasure. For they ask, not without great offence to the Holy Spirit, who can prove to us that scripture is from God? Who can assure us that it has been preserved whole until our own day? Who can persuade us that one book is to be received and obeyed, and another rejected, unless the church makes a positive ruling in all such things? Accordingly, they conclude that it is for the church to determine what reverence we owe scripture and what books go to make it up. In this way, these blasphemers, seeking to impose a monstrous tyranny under cover of the church, are indifferent to the absurdities in which they trap themselves and others, as long as they can convince the ignorant that the church is free to do anything it pleases. Now, if that were the case... What would become of those poor consciences which seek a firm assurance of eternal life if they learned that all such promises rested solely on the judgment of men? If that was what they thought, how could they stop wavering and trembling? Then too, would not our faith be exposed to the jeers of unbelievers? Would it not appear suspect in the world's eyes if people thought that it was built on the favour and goodwill of men? These liars, however, are easily refuted by Paul's single statement that the church is established on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. If the teaching of the prophets and apostles is the church's foundation, it must have had assured authority before ever the church began to appear. Nor can they quibble that although the church had its origin there, we cannot be certain what books we should attribute to the prophets and apostles until the church has made up its mind. For if, from the very outset, the Christian church was founded on the prophets' writings and on the apostles' preaching, their teaching, wherever it is found, had to be settled and improved earlier than the church itself. For without it, the church would never have existed. So it is illusory, a mere lie, to maintain that the church is empowered so to judge scripture that it can decide its reliability at will. So when the church receives an assent to scripture, it does not confer authenticity on what before was doubtful or uncertain. Because it acknowledges it to be its Lord's truth, it at once reveres it, as indeed it should. As to their question, without recourse to the church's verdict, how can we know that scripture comes from God? They might as well ask how we learn to tell light from darkness white from black, sour from sweet. For scripture provides no less evidence of its truth than white or black objects do of their colour, or sweeter, bitter things of their taste. Scripture is authenticated by the Holy Spirit's inner witness. 
if we truly want to help men's consciences so that they are not gripped by perpetual doubt, we must derive the authority of scripture from a higher source than human reasoning, evidence or conjecture. We must, that is, base it on the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Although scripture's own majesty is enough to command our reverence, it really begins to affect us only when it is sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Being illumined by his power, we no longer believe on the strength of our own or of others' judgment that scripture is from God. Above and beyond all human judgment, we conclude without question that it is given to us from the mouth of God himself, through the ministry of men. It is as if, in Scripture, we beheld with our own eyes the very essence of God. We cease, therefore, to look for proofs and probabilities on which to base our judgment. Instead, we subject our judgment and intellect to Scripture as to a source so high as to rule out the need for judgment. Not because we are like some who thoughtlessly embrace unfamiliar things only to tire of them once they become better known but because we are very sure that in Scripture we have the unassailable truth. Nor because we are like the ignorant who are in the habit of surrendering their minds to superstition, but because we feel that in Scripture the express power of deity is displayed, kindling in us the desire to give conscious and willing obedience more powerfully than if only human will or knowledge were involved. This, then, is a conviction which does not require reasons. Nevertheless, it is also a knowledge which is based upon a very sound reason, since our mind has a firmer and surer place to rest than in any set of reasons. It is finally a feeling which can only spring from heavenly revelations. Here, I am talking of nothing else than what every believer experiences in himself, except that my words do not do justice to so worthy a theme and are most inadequate as an explanation. Secondary Proofs of Scripture's Authority Its Wisdom and Truth Unless we have a higher and firmer certainty than any human judgment can provide, there is no point proving the authority of Scripture by rational argument. It cannot be established on the basis of the Church's consent, nor can it be confirmed by other evidence. For if this foundation is not first laid, it is bound to remain in abeyance. Once, however, we obediently accept Scripture as we should, and place it beyond all doubt, the reasons which before were not strong enough to impart certainty to our hearts will now appear as valuable aids. It is hard to describe the confirmation we receive when we carefully consider how well God has there arranged and laid out the working of his wisdom, when we realise how heavenly is the doctrine which it everywhere displays, containing nothing earthly, and how well matched are all its parts, together with other factors which give authority to written texts. Further encouragement is given us when we reflect that it is the splendour of its content rather than the elegance of its words which fills us with such wonder. 
It was indeed no accident of providence that God handed down to us the lofty secrets of his heavenly kingdom in mean, unvarnished words. Otherwise, had they been filled and enriched by the arts of eloquence, the wicked would have sneered that that was where scripture's entire power lay. As it is, since such rough and almost rustic plainness moves us to greater reverence than all the fluency of the world's great rhetoricians, must we not judge that scripture contains such a power of truth that it does not need any verbal artifice? That is why the apostle rightly argues that the faith of the Corinthians rested not on human wisdom but on the power of God, since his preaching among them had not been in persuasive words of man's wisdom was approved by manifestations of the spirit and of power. Truth is exempt from all doubt. It needs no other helps, but is perfectly sufficient to sustain itself. How peculiar this power is to scripture is shown by the fact that of all human writings, there is none, however polished and adorned, which has such force to move us. When we read Demosthenes or Cicero, Plato, Aristotle or others of that class, I confess that in a wonderful way they will attract, charm and impress us, captivating our very minds. But if we pass from them to the reading of the Holy Scriptures, they will, whether we like it or not, so transfix us, so cut us to the quick and lodge so deeply within us that all the might of the rhetoricians and philosophers will be, in comparison with their power, mere smoke. From this, it is easy to see that the holy scriptures have a certain godlike quality of arousing men, because they far outstrip the finest gifts of human effort. Secondary Proofs of Scripture's Authority The History of the Church Moreover, the consent of the Church is not without importance. It is no small thing that although many centuries have passed since the Scriptures were made known, there has been continuing agreement regarding the obedience which is owed them. The devil has striven in numerous ways to suppress or overthrow them, and even to blot them out of human memory. Nevertheless, like the palm tree, they have remained unassailable and triumphant. For there have been few among the most gifted philosophers and rhetoricians who have not exercised their cleverness at scripture's expense. Yet it did none of them any good. The earth summoned all its massive powers to destroy God's truth, but everything it did ended in smoke. How could the scriptures have resisted so fierce an onslaught from all sides if they had relied for protection on merely human help? We do better to conclude, therefore, that holy scripture, as we have it, is from God, since despite men's wisdom and might, it has prevailed by its own power. Not only so, but there was not a single city or nation which determined to receive it. However, through all the length and breadth of earth, it has imposed its authority with the uniform consent of all peoples, who in other respects had nothing else in common. 
the fact that so many different races, otherwise divided in their style and manner of living, should so agree among themselves, must certainly sway us, for it was clearly God's power which affected this agreement. This consideration has even greater weight when we observe the integrity and holiness of those who willingly accepted scripture. I am not referring here to everyone, but to those whom our Lord set up as lamps in his church to illumine it with the light of their holiness. Consider too with what assurance we should receive the teaching which we know so many holy persons sealed and attested with their own blood. They did not hesitate to die bravely and even cheerfully for the truth they had received. And how shall we not receive it with sure and invincible conviction, since it comes to us with such a guarantee and endorsement? It is no small mark of approval that scripture has been certified by the blood of so many witnesses. This is especially so when we realize that they endured death, testifying to their faith, not in a state of frenzy or wild passion, as is sometimes true of those whose love of error has made them quite mad, but moved by a zeal for God, which was both sober and measured, steadfast and sure. There are many other reasons, all of them obvious, which not only confirm to believing hearts the majesty and dignity of Scripture, but which also powerfully uphold it against the slanders of evil men. In themselves, however, these reasons are not enough properly to establish Scripture's certainty until the Heavenly Father allows His divinity to shine forth in it, removing all doubt and contention and ensuring that it is accorded firm reverence. In the long run, scripture will suffice to give us a saving knowledge of God once his certainty is buttressed by an inner conviction of the Holy Spirit. Human proofs which serve to confirm scripture will be effective only when, as secondary aids and means which help us in our weakness, they follow that principle and supreme proof. Error of the Spiritualists Who Abandon Scripture Now those who, forsaking Scripture, dream of some other way of reaching God, are not so much duped by error as driven by sheer fury. Men of this sort, a surly, bitter lot, have appeared proudly claiming to be taught by the Spirit. They scorn all reading and mock the simplicity of those who still follow what, in their parlance, is the dead letter which kills. I would like them to tell me who is this spirit, whose inspiration so exalts them that they dare despise the entire teaching of scripture as childish and utterly base. If they reply that it is the spirit of Christ, their confidence is totally absurd. They will, I assume, allow that the apostles and believing members of the early church were inspired by Christ's Spirit. Yet none of them learned to despise God's word. Each, in fact, was led to revere it all the more as their writings plainly testify. Moreover, I would like them to tell me whether they received a different spirit from the one which the Lord promised his disciples. 
Mad as they are, I do not think them so seized by frenzy as to make such a boast. How, then, did the Lord describe the spirit he promised to send? He said that he would not speak of himself, but would impart to the apostles' minds all that he had taught them by his word. It is therefore not the role of the Holy Spirit, such as he is promised to us, to dream up fresh and original revelations, or to fashion a new kind of teaching which alienates us from the gospel message which we have received. His role is rather to seal and confirm in our hearts the teaching provided for us in the gospel. From this, we readily see that we should strive diligently both to hear scripture and to read it, if we would receive some fruit and benefit from God's spirit. On the other hand, if some spirit, forsaking the wisdom contained in God's word, were to propose something different, we would be right to suspect him of vanity and falsehood. For what else could he be, seeing that Satan is able to transform himself into an angel of light? What authority would the Spirit have among us if he could not be discerned by a very sure sign? Without doubt, the Lord's voice very clearly identifies him for us, and yet these poor muddled wretches choose deliberately to err, seeking the Spirit by their own powers rather than by God's. They object, however that it would be utterly ridiculous if the Spirit of God, to whom all things should be subject, was himself subject to Scripture. As if it were shameful for the Holy Spirit to be always the same and consistent, forever steadfast, never changing. Of course, if he could be made subject to some lesser standard, human, angelic or otherwise, he might be said to have been brought down, reduced to the status of a slave. When, however, he is compared only with himself, and considered in himself, who could argue that he had been wronged? They protest, nevertheless, that in doing this we subject him to our scrutiny. I agree, but point out that our scrutiny is how he chooses to establish his majesty over us. We should be wholly content for him to reveal himself to us but lest in his guise the spirit of Satan should come among us, he has stamped his own image on the scriptures and would have us recognize him there. He is their author. He cannot vary or be different from himself, so must always remain what he has there shown himself to be. That does him no discredit unless we think it an honor for him to sink lower than himself. Scripture, never a dead letter, when joined to the grace of Christ. When they accuse us of stopping only at the letter which kills, they make it clear that they will not escape God's punishment for having despised Scripture. This is very plain in the passage where Paul attacks false teachers who extol the bare law apart from Christ. They lead God's people away from the grace of the new covenant in which the Lord promises believers to inscribe his law on their inward parts and to write it on their hearts. 
God's law is thus a dead letter which kills those who follow it when it is separated from the grace of Christ and when it merely sounds in our ears without touching our hearts. If, however, by God's Spirit it is vividly impressed on the will, and if it conveys Jesus Christ to us, it is the word of life, converting souls and giving wisdom to the humble. In fact, in the same passage, Paul calls his preaching a ministry of the Spirit. His meaning is that God's Spirit is so joined and bound to his truth, which he has disclosed in the Scriptures, that his power is fully revealed when the word is received with all due reverence. This is not to contradict the point made earlier, that the word has no certainty for us until it is confirmed by the Spirit. For the Lord has brought together, as in a mutual bond, the certainty of both his Spirit and his word, in order that our mind may obediently receive the word in which it sees the Spirit's light and is led to contemplate the face of God. So without fear of error or deceit, we are able to receive God's Spirit, discerning him in his image, that is, in his word. That is the truth of the matter. God did not direct a word to men in order simply to cancel it immediately, his Spirit came. Instead, he sent his Spirit by whose power he had earlier dispensed his word, in order to conclude his work through his word, and so effectively to confirm it. This was how Christ opened the minds of his two disciples, not to make them wise in themselves by rejecting scripture, but to help them understand it. Similarly, when Paul urges the Thessalonians not to quench the spirit, he does not send them off after vain and airy speculations divorced from the word but proceeds to warn them not to despise prophesying. His meaning here is clear. The light of the Spirit is stifled when prophesying is held in contempt. Now what reply do we get from those insolent dreamers, who, setting aside and scorning God's word, snatch at whatever idea forms in their sleepy brain and hail only it as a valid revelation? Undoubtedly, God's children should display restraint of a very different order, knowing that when they do not have God's Spirit, they are devoid of the full light of truth. They look on the Word as an instrument by which the Lord brings the light of the Spirit to believers. They know of no other Spirit than the one who dwelt in the Apostles and who spoke by their mouth. By Him they are constantly brought back to the Word and their ears opened to it. Agreement of Scripture with the Witness of Creation We have taught that the knowledge of God, though otherwise freely displayed in the fabric of the world and very fully in all created things, is more intimately revealed through His Word. It is time now to consider whether God's self-disclosure in Scripture matches the image which His works earlier revealed to us. This would prove to be a lengthy topic if we were to pause and treat it carefully. For my part, I will be content to present an outline only. It will show believing minds what in Scripture they should chiefly know about God and how they may be safely guided to that goal.
In the first place, the Lord declares himself to be the God who, having created heaven and earth, spread his grace and limitless bounty over the whole human race. Yet he has never for a moment ceased to nourish and support believers and to sustain them with his special grace. In return, he has been known and honoured by them. By the same token, he has, in the history of every age, demonstrated in a painting, so to speak, how unfailing is his goodness to believers, with what providence he watches over them, how ready he is to do good to them, how mightily he aids them, how fervently he loves them, how patiently he bears with their faults, with what fatherly gentleness he punishes them, and how he forever keeps his promises to them. By contrast, we see how severe is his vengeance upon sinners, how after long years of patience his dreadful wrath is kindled, and with what power his hand confounds and scatters them. This portrayal accords most closely with what we said was revealed in the universal fabric of the world. However, in certain places his nature is explained, providing a vivid likeness of his face which we may clearly see. Thus, when Moses described God, it was as if he intended succinctly to include everything which men might rightly know about him. This is what he says. The Lord, the Lord God, full of pity and compassion, patient, entirely good and true, showing mercy to a thousand generations, removing iniquity and sin, in whose sight the blameless are not blameless, who punishes the sins of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren. Here, we are led to reflect that his eternity and his essence which reside in him are designated by the name which is first ascribed to him and which is repeated twice in the Hebrew with the meaning he who alone is. Moses then reminds us of God's attributes, which show him not as he is in himself, but as he is toward us. The kind of knowledge is more a matter of living experience than of empty speculation. We notice, moreover, that the attributes which are enumerated here are the same as those that shine in the heavens and on earth compassion, goodness, mercy, righteousness, judgment, and truth. His overall power is included in the Hebrew word which ascribes a third title to him. It has the sense of containing all the attributes in oneself. The prophets also apply the same titles to him when they wish to ascribe full praise to his holy name. To avoid having to assemble too many texts, one psalm will suffice for now. In it, the sum of all his qualities is so thoroughly rehearsed that nothing has been left out, yet it mentions nothing which cannot be observed in creation. God thus permits us to know him through experience exactly as he shows himself to be in his word. In Jeremiah, where he declares by what qualities he wishes us to know him, he does not describe himself so fully. Nevertheless, the message is the same. Whoever boasts, 
let him boast in this, that he knows me as the God who exercises mercy, righteousness and judgment on the earth. Without doubt, these three things are what we must chiefly know. God's mercy, on which the salvation of us all depends. His judgment, which he daily visits on the wicked, and which awaits them with even greater rigour to their eternal shame. And his righteousness, by which his faithful people are generously preserved. With all these things combined, the prophet testifies that we have ample cause to boast in God. Yet in the process nothing is overlooked, neither God's power, his truth, his holiness or his goodness. What understanding could we have of his righteousness, mercy and judgment, for that we must have, if it were not built on his unchanging truth? And how could we imagine he rules the earth with righteousness and judgment if we had not heard of his power? From where does his mercy come, if not from his goodness? Finally, if mercy, righteousness and judgment are all his ways, then his holiness too shines forth in them. Thus, the knowledge of God presented to us in Scripture has the same end in view as that which is found in all created things. It should first prompt us to fear God and then to trust in him, so that we may serve and honour him by innocence of life, by unfeigned obedience and by utter reliance on his goodness. However, since God does not allow us to behold him directly and up close, except in the face of Christ who is visible only to the eye of faith, what remains to be said concerning the knowledge of God is better left until we come to speak of the understanding of faith.